I've been here before, so evidently I didn't do anything so terrible that I wasn't invited to come back, so I appreciate that. Um, but that can happen, so we'll see. <laughs> it is uh, wonderful to have the opportunity and the privilege to share God's Word with you. And um, I'd like to ask you to uh, either open your Bibles or listen closely to the words I'm going to be reading uh, from the Scriptures. I'll be reading from uh, the uh, book of Acts. Chapter 13, verses 1 through 4. Acts chapter 13, verses 1 through 4, uh, using the English Standard Version. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manon, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then, after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we ask that your Holy Spirit would come and speak to our hearts. Above all, Lord, we want our lives to glorify you. So, Lord, as we think about these verses and we think about what they mean to us in our church, we ask, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would speak to us and show us, Lord God, what part we can play in bringing glory to your Son, Jesus Christ. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. The uh, Church of Antioch is what we're going to be talking about this morning. And the Church of Antioch uh, was actually located in what is today Turkey. So it was a church that was kind of unusual because where it was located. It was started also in a kind of unusual way. You can read about how it started in Acts chapter 11. In Acts chapter 11, it says there was a persecution going on of followers of Jesus, and one man in particular was assassinated. He was publicly tortured and killed. His name was Stephen. And it says that a lot of the followers of Jesus saw that, and they certainly knew about it, but they saw it, and as followers of Jesus, having seen a death squad pull Stephen out and stone him publicly, they became afraid. And it says in Acts 11, they fled Israel because of the death squads. Now think about the things we saw in the news not too long ago, where these death squads in the Middle East would wander around different countries, and they would find people who believe things different than they believe. And they would pull them out and they would publicly torture them and execute them. That was what was going on. What you saw a few years ago on television is not new. It's been around for a long time. And so that's what was going on. The followers of Jesus saw that and they fled Israel. And they ended up in what was at that time called Syria, which to today is part of Turkey. So there was a handful of people that went there as religious refugees to escape the persecution and the potential death of being a follower of Jesus Christ. Now keep in mind, we're in early Acts, and there's only a handful of Christian churches. So Christianity is not the massive religious movement it is today. What we're reading in Acts is there's probably only a handful of churches. Maybe at best there's a dozen Christian churches. And they're not in buildings. They're probably in houses, or they're probably meeting outside in some public area or some area where people can congregate. So we're not talking about a well-established religious movement like Christianity is today. 
there were a few Christian churches. And there was only one Christian church outside of Israel, in Antioch. There was only one Christian church that existed outside of Israel. And that was this church in what in that day was called Syria. Now this church was even stranger. Not only was it a church that wasn't in Israel, but it was also a church that was made up of Jews and Gentiles. See, the early Christian churches were all, Gen- were all Jewish churches. Jews who had converted to fo- being followers of Jesus Christ. But in this case, this church in Antioch had gathered people that lived in the community that weren't Jews, and they were part of the Antioch church. So it was a Jewish-Gentile church, Jewish-non-Jewish church. And the Jews that attended there, many of them had lived in that part of Syria most of their lives. And so culturally, they weren't even very good Jews anymore. Just like any immigrant who lives in another country year after year, decade after decade, they adopt the culture of that country. That's what these Jews had done. This was an unusual church. This church was where Christians were first called Christians, and this church was the first church in the history of all Christianity to send out missionaries. The first missionaries ever sent into the world came out of this strange little church somewhere in Turkey. We're going to talk about the Church of Antioch, and we're going to talk about how that church revolutionized Christianity did stuff with Christianity that no one had ever done before. But before I do that, I want to talk about a famous pharmacist named Dr. Pemberton, and you may have heard of him. In 1886, Dr. Pemberton lived in Atlanta, Georgia, and he developed a soft drink in his pharmacy, and his friends who tasted it said it was quote-unquote excellent. They say that in 1886, he sold the soft drink for five cents a glass, and he would sell on average nine glasses a day, making a whopping gross profit of 45 cents a day. 1886 was the start of the soft drink empire called Coca-Cola. It started small, and the best it could get was 45 cents in gross profits, which I suspect meant he lost money selling the first Coca-Colas. But that began, what began as something that was not terribly significant ended up being the greatest, most powerful soft drink empire in the world. Antioch is important to the church as Dr. Pemberton was important to Coca-Cola. They have the same relationship. Both were started of something that didn't seem very important, and they both turned into something extraordinary and something big that impacted the whole world. So, let's take a look at the Antioch Church, a small church, a church that didn't have a building, a church that was in a different country than all the other Christian churches were in, a church that was mixed of Jews and Gentiles. Let's look at that church and see if we can understand in the verses we've read how they revolutionize the world. First, what can we learn from the church of Antioch? Because if we can learn something from them, we too might be able to start something big. First, 
As I mentioned, the Antioch church had a tough start. The followers of Jesus Christ in Jerusalem saw assassins on the streets, saw death squads in their neighborhoods looking to track down the followers of Jesus Christ and kill them. So these Christians of Antioch were refugees who had left their country and the safety of their country or the 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 security of their country and that they had families and jobs to go live in a foreign country in Syria. These followers of Jesus were just a tiny fringe group. They were not a major religion. And at this point, they weren't a significant religious movement such as Christianity is today. Now, as you think about these people in, in Israel that were uh, being persecuted, you can think, well, you know, what were their options? I mean, what, what could they have done after they saw Stephen killed and these death squads wandering around the streets? What could they have done? Well, one thing they could have done is to died as martyrs, just stayed there and died as martyrs. Another thing they could have done, which some people had done, is just renounce your faith. Say, so, you know, I, I was following Jesus and changed my mind. Wasn't, wasn't for me. I'm not a follower of Jesus. So they could have just renounced their faith. But these people did a third option. They left their country. They left their employment. They left their families. They left their language. They left the food that they were familiar with. They left their culture. And they did that so they would be free to profess their faith in Jesus Christ. Now, why didn't they just stay in Israel? Just stay in Israel and become obscure. Remember, at Jesus' crucifixion, the mob asked Peter, aren't you with that group? Aren't you a follower of Jesus? And you remember what Peter said? He said, no, not me. I'm not with him. I don't know anything about that guy, and I'm certainly not with that group he's with. Why didn't they just do that? Why didn't they do what Peter showed them to do? Why didn't they just become obscure and, 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 and hide from their faith so nobody would know who they were? They could have just blended in. Didn't need to stand out. But that's not who these people were. They refused to blend in. They demanded the opportunity, even if they had to move to a whole new country, to profess their faith in Jesus Christ. Their faith was their life, and as long as they had life, they would profess their faith. What you see is, is the church of Antioch was deeply devoted to Jesus Christ. The fact that the members had moved to Antioch so they could express their faith demonstrated their commitment. What if, what if we were part of a church where all of you would come from another country because you weren't free to profess your faith in that country and you would be killed if you professed your faith in that country? What if we were a church that were full of those kind of people? What kind of church would we have? People who were religious refugees. People who said, I will give up everything. My family, my job, my culture, the comfort of life so I can live somewhere where I can profess my faith in Jesus Christ. What if you had a church full of people like that? That's what Antioch had. That's the kind of church they had. 
When we take blending in off the table as far as the way we live our Christian lives, when we take obscurity off the table as far as the way we live our Christian lives, when we take hiding our faith from those who might not like to hear about our faith off the table, when it comes to living our Christian lives, then we end up being a witness for Jesus Christ. See, there's a difference between professing your faith and believing. Freedom to profess our faith is much different than freedom to have faith. I travel a lot around the world. I travel in all kinds of countries. Uh, I go to Cuba. I go to Laos. I go to China. Um, I go to European countries. You know, we have a small mission, Cumberland Presbyterian Mission in Lyon, France. France says that you can believe what you want to believe. They say that's religious freedom. You can believe what you want to believe, but you can't proselytize. That's illegal, so keep your mouth shut. That's true all over Europe. That's true in Cuba. That's true in China. That's true in many countries around the world. You know that you're free to believe what you want to believe in any country in the world, including North Korea. The problem is when you profess your faith, even modern European countries say you can't do that. You cannot proselytize. You cannot go out and publicly profess your faith. So our churches in places like France and Cuba and Laos and different countries that are not open to the gospel in certain sense of the word, in those countries you're free to believe, but you're not free to go out and share your faith in the streets of those countries. People of the church of Antioch said, we will not live like that. We will not live like that. Even if we have to move, we will move. I think that is why the first people to be called Christians were the members of the Antioch church. They were a verb, professing. They were professing their faith. They were not just a noun believers, but they were a people who were active in their faith, they were professing their faith in Jesus Christ. And they would do whatever they had to do to have the right to profess their faith. And that's why people said, who in the world are those people? Who are those people that are in our neighborhoods, that are on our street, that are in our places of work and, and in our gatherings around uh, the neighborhoods that we live in? Who are those people that profess their faith in Jesus Christ? And somebody said, well, they're followers of that guy, Christ, uh, Jesus Christ. And then somebody said, well, I guess we'll call them Christians. And that's what they did. The first people to ever be called Christians were those who came out of the Antioch church. Another thing I see, the Antioch church was highly committed, but it was also a place of uh, high transformation. It was a place where people's lives were transformed. Now, that aspect of transformation is you look at the uh, church of Antioch was kind of strange. It really was a weird church. It was in a different country. It was a multicultural church. It was a long way from all the other Christian churches, and it was even stranger than that when you read the list of the people who were in that church because Acts gives you lists. They give you several of the names of the people who are there. Barnabas brought Paul to the Antioch church. That's what it says. Paul was a relatively new Christian, and it says they went to the Antioch church, and they spent a year participating in that church. This was one of Paul's first 
church experiences. Now, think about this. Paul was the leader of those death squads. He was part of those death squads. Why did the church of Antioch exist? Because of those death squads. And so one day Barnabas walks in to wherever they were meeting, someone's home or someone's backyard, and he walks in and says, let me introduce you to my new friend, the new believer, Paul, who once was called Saul. And everybody says, everybody there says, we, we know who that was. That's why we're here. Because of him and the people he hung out with. That's why we're here. That's why we're refugees. That's why we're displaced. Now, the only way that Paul would have ever been accepted by those people is that he was able to demonstrate that his life was transformed. Paul had a transformation story. And not only did he have a transformation story about the road to Damascus where God spoke to him, but also after the road to Damascus and his transformational experience with God, his life was changed. And they saw that. And Barnabas could testify to that. And everybody who knew Paul could testify to that. Doesn't stop with Paul, though. It also says in these verses, it gets even worse. There was a guy there named Manon. He was also part of the church. It says he was friends with Herod. <laughs> now, Herod the Great was the guy who killed all the children. Remember the children born in infancy when Jesus was born, Herod the Great had a lot of Jewish children executed so that he could stop the coming of the Messiah. He had a son who was named Herod. And he also became a governor of Israel and sometimes was called King Herod. That was the guy who beheaded John the Baptist. That was the guy who orchestrated and promoted the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. It says that Manon was a good friend of the Herod family. He was an insider. He was part of that group. And it says that Manon was also part of that church. He was a lifelong friend of Herod the one that beheaded John the Baptist and was instrumental in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. The only way, the only way these two men could have been accepted into this group was that their lives had been totally and convincingly transformed. And that was probably true of everybody in the Antioch church. Can you imagine testimony night in the Antioch church? Paul stands up and tells about killing Stephen. And then he tells about his transformation on the Damascus Road. And then Manon stands up and he tells about all of the oppression that he was part of with the empire of Herod. And then he tells about his conversion experience. And then you go around the room, story after story after story of incredible transformation. That was the Antioch church. It was a church where people told their stories about what God had done in their lives. You know, God, uh, Paul goes into detail in the uh, letters that he wrote later in the New Testament about his conversion. And he talks about God's grace. And what he says is that God came into his heart and God transformed him. 
giving him a new passion, a new appetite for godliness. And Paul goes into great detail talking about God's grace and how God's grace instilled in him the the want and the do, as he says in Philippians, the desire, the appetite to do godliness. And what Paul says, it wasn't legalism. It wasn't forcing himself to do good things. It was God living in him that gave him a passion to do good things, to do godly things. To please God. And Paul goes into great detail about talking about that energy, that new heart that comes in and gives us an enthusiasm to live godly lives. That's what Paul talks about. He talks about transformation that comes from on the inside and then it comes out. And he calls that grace. God in us, making us willing and able to do God's will. That's what Paul talks about. Antioch was a passionate church. All of its members were people who had once been disappointments in some way or the other in their past. At some point in some of their lives, they had been horrible, terrible people, but they were now changed. They were transformed, and they were enthusiastic about pleasing their God. There was a desire within them, a fire within them, Their lives were changed and they were enthusiastic about their changed lives. It's like the remarkable stories of people we hear sometimes who've had a life-threatening disease and through medicine or some other means they've been cured of that illness and because they were so close to death and they stepped back from death and they survived and they lived, their lives are changed, their perspectives are changed. Life has totally new meaning for them. That's what happened to Paul. That's what happened to Manon. That's what happened to all the people in the Antioch church. They went from being killers and despots to being compassionate servants, and their stories were profound. Their stories were thrilling about the transformation that took place in their lives. What a church. What a church. Lastly, it appears this transformation was more than repentance. It was more than losing a passion to sin and gaining a passion for righteousness. It was more than that. This church prayed and fasted. They prayed and they fasted. Grace produced in them an enthusiasm for spirituality. It was a spiritual church. They really wanted to experience God. It was an experience they wanted to have in which they could feel the presence of God in their lives. It wasn't legalism. It was something else. It was an experience with God that was transformative and was meaningful and profound. One of the challenges we have as Western Christians is our tendency to separate God from our daily lives. We don't mean to, but we tend to do it more than we realize. When we get sick, we call a doctor. And then we call the church to pray for us. But we do call the doctor. And when we feel bad, we call the psychologist. And when our relationships are not working out, we call a counselor. And none of these things are bad. None of these things are bad. But that's the Western mentality. When you travel into other parts of the world, that's not their go-to first thing to do. In other cultures, their first thing to do is seek out God and find a solution from God. So, 
In many cultures around the world, and you can see this in the scripture, which is also representative, is you go to God and you expect God to intervene in your life, in your daily life. When you have daily problems, you pray to God, you fast, and you expect God to respond. That's the kind of gospel you see in the New Testament. It's a living, active God in our daily lives. It's a God that relates to us in real ways. There was a famous missionary who became a famous mission scholar named Leslie Newbigin. He was a missionary in India, and he said the problem, he was from England, and he said the problem with the Western church is that we don't expect God to be active in our daily lives. We focus on correct beliefs, and correct beliefs are important. It's not that they're not important. But he says, we focus on correct beliefs and hope that that will influence our ethical lives, that we'll make good ethical decisions, good decisions of right and wrong. But Leslie Newbigin says that we need to be careful and realize, having been a missionary in India, that God does act in our daily lives. We need to expect God to do that. We need to pray that God will do that. What the world really wants said Leslie Newbigin and many other missionaries, is they want to experience God. They want a relationship with God. They want to experience the supernatural. Now, there's nothing wrong with doctors and psychologists and counselors. We certainly need them. But we also need to realize that God will hear our prayers, and God will act in our lives in real, concrete ways. We have two pastors that are friends of mine in Columbia, South America. One is Johnny Montano, and the other one is Wilson Lopez. Johnny Montano's Cumberland Presbyterian Church has 1,000 members, and Wilson's has 700, two of the largest CP churches in the world. If you go to their churches, both of these churches emphasize the supernatural. They have all-night prayer meetings. That's pretty common. All throughout the year, there are calls to come to church and spend all night praying and fasting. They call the sick in front of their congregation to pray for them and lay hands on them. They circle themselves, the leaders of the church, around those who are burdened and tormented, and they lay hands on those people and they pray for them. When you go to their churches, at the end of the service, there'll be an altar call. There will be hundreds standing in the altar, and the elders will walk through and pray for everybody up there, some for salvation, some for peace, some for healing, Whatever the daily need is, that's what the elders will pray for. Two of the largest CP churches in our denomination. Practicing, experiencing God in our daily lives. Now I'm excited to announce that Wilson Lopez just got, and his family just got their visas to move as Cumberland Presbyterian missionaries to Spain. So we'll be taking Wilson and his family in his enthusiasm for the Lord, and we will be planting more churches in Europe. The Cumberland Presbyterian Church will. There's a lot to know about God, but we also need to know God. There are a lot of beliefs we need to have, correct beliefs, and they're important, but we also need to know God to experience in a supernatural way God's presence. That was the church of Antioch. They prayed and they fasted and the Holy Spirit spoke. 
And the Holy Spirit said, I want Paul and Barnabas to leave. Now, there is no way that this church in Antioch was going to keep all of this to themselves. There was no way. The church selected two of their most influential and capable leaders, Paul and Barnabas. They laid hands on them because the Holy Spirit told them to, and they sent them to other countries to replicate the Antioch experience. Paul and Barnabas left this extraordinary church, the church of Antioch. And if you got a Bible with the map in the back, you can see Paul and Barnabas' first missionary journey. And that map will show you all the cities and different cultures they went to proclaiming the gospel. They traveled first to Cyprus, and then they kept traveling. That was the first missionary journey. That was the start of something big. The reason I know that is because you're here today. You are a result of that first missionary journey. That first missionary journey got all the way to Columbus, Mississippi. Took a while, but it got here. And we are the fruits of that first missionary journey. The church exploded out of Israel. It raced across the Mediterranean. It eventually ran into Europe and ran into the Americas and to Africa, to Asia, to South America, to all around the world. The church exploded in growth and enthusiasm quickly all around the world. I was talking to my wife uh, the other day. When I go to work in the morning, I go to my office, and my wife is an elementary school teacher, and um, a lot of days when I go to work, I say, you know, today could be the day. Today could be the day that I change the world. could happen. <laughs> and I tell my wife that. I say, you know, honey, I know you're working in elementary school in uh, Birmingham. And I said, you know, you could do something today that could change the world. It could happen. Now, a lot of times it doesn't happen. But you look at people like, Martin Luther, the great reformer, he, he got up one day, normal day, and he took out some complaints he had about the church, and he nailed them on the door of a church building there, the Wittenberg door, and the church he was uh, in the city he was at, and it changed the world. Who'd have known? Who'd have thought it? Changed the world. The Protestant Reformation took off, and we're part of that. And I look in history, and I look at people who woke up thinking they were just going to have a normal, average day, and they did something, sometimes not even aware they did it, but they did something, and it changed the world. Paul and Barnabas left the Antioch church. Don't know if they knew that that was going to be such an extraordinary event, but they went to Cyprus, and they changed the world. That's us. It could happen. It could happen. When you get up and you go wherever you're going tomorrow morning to work or whatever you're going to be doing, don't let it scare you, but it's true. You may do something. You may do something. God could use you to do something that could change the world. The start of something big in the Antioch church was they professed their faith they professed their faith when it wasn't easy to profess their faith. 
It was a church of grace. Their lives were transformed. There was a passion within that consumed their lives. And it was a church where they experienced God. It was an experience they could see, they could touch, they could feel. God was speaking to them, and they knew he was. So, you may be, as a church and certainly as a follower of Jesus Christ, the start of something big. It's happened before. God bless you. Thank you so much for letting me come and share with you today. Thank you, Pastor Tim, for letting me come.